Alrighty then. We're going to be in the book of Colossians this morning. You guys ready? Did you come mentally prepared? Extra sleep, caffeine, whatever you need. Jumping jacks. We're going to pick up where we left off. We are in chapter 2. Our text this morning is going to be verses 11 through 12, and you can find that on page 984 of the Blue Bibles we provide. Colossians 2, 11 through 12. And I want to take a moment just to recap what we covered so far in chapter 2, not all of chapter 2, but starting in verses 6 and 7, which were really the turning point in this letter. Back in verses 6 through 7, we saw... Paul's first and chief command to the Colossians, and he, he urged them to keep walking in Christ in the same way that they had received him. It was by faith in him as the Lord, and not by religious works, that they had received him, and it was by faith in him that they were to continue living out their lives in him. It's in this way that they would remain rooted in him, and continue being built up in him with the result that they would continually be strengthened in the faith and respond with abundant thanksgiving to God if they continued walking in him by faith, just as they received him. This is true spiritual empowerment and fulfillment, walking by faith in Christ, walking by faith in him as the Lord, as he is. And the result of that is true spiritual empowerment in your life and fulfillment in your life. That's the real Christian life right there, summed up. And then verse 8, we saw Paul give a cautionary command. He warned the Colossians not to be deceived into thinking that spiritual fullness and spiritual empowerment could come through philosophy and man-made traditions and religious ceremonies and rituals and regulations. Embracing these things would lead them away from walking by faith in Christ. That's what they would do if they embraced these things. And it would suppress the spiritual freedom and growth that they were meant to experience in Christ. You see, the false teachers were saying, we have this philosophy, this this enlightenment that we have, this enlightened knowledge that we want to share. And we have these traditions that have been passed down for generations of these spiritual disciplines that are of great value for your soul and all these regulations and ceremonies and rituals for you to keep if you want to be more empowered and, and more spiritual. And Paul said embracing those things would actually lead them away from the very thing that defined the Christian life, walking by faith in Christ. And then we saw Paul explain in verses 9 and 10 that the Colossians already have unlimited spiritual fullness and empowerment because they, through faith, have been united to Christ, and in Christ dwells all the fullness of the essence of God. So they had all the empowerment they needed. They had all the fullness they needed because they were united to him in whom the fullness of God dwells. In Christ, the Colossians, and you, if you're in Christ, had an infinite supply of God's life and grace and wisdom and power. And if you're in Christ, you have had this since the day of your salvation. You don't just get saved and then there's a long progression of spiritual growth to attain 
spiritual wisdom or empowerment or fullness or life. You receive all of that by placing your faith in Christ and being united with him. So you receive that fullness in the day of your salvation when you hear and understand and believe the gospel and place your faith in Christ. That was true of the Colossians. He pointed them back to their conversion. He pointed them back to the fact that they heard and believed the message of God, of his salvation, and it was on that day that they received all the fullness of Christ through faith. So now, in verses 11 and 12, here's what we're going to see. We're going to see Paul expand upon the reality of the Colossians' spiritual fullness in Christ by pointing them back to the day of their salvation and emphasizing the completeness of God's gracious and sovereign spiritual work upon them. Now let's read our text. And we're going to start in verse 8 just for, to build up the context. Starting in verse 8. Paul wrote, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So what Paul said in verses 9 and 10 is, is really enough to prove the point to the Colossians and to every true Christian that we are not spiritually deficient. We're in Christ. We're not spiritually deficient or lacking. What he said there, you've been filled in him and all the fullness of God dwells in him. That's enough to make that point. We have all we need for life and godliness in Christ. Faith in Christ is not the first step on a, a huge stairway that we must then continue to climb by means of works in order to attain spiritual fullness and power and privilege. Through faith in Christ, we have been filled. We're united to him in whom the fullness of God dwells. And I would say that this truth alone is enough to obliterate the claims of the false teachers their claims that spiritual empowerment and fullness come through embracing man-made philosophy and traditions and primitive religious practices, elemental spirits of the world, primitive religious practices. But Paul continues on. He doesn't stop there. He made his point, but he continues on, and he drives the point even further. Not only have you been filled in Christ, he says, but verse 11, in him also... You were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. By putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. In other words, at the time of your salvation, you underwent, if you're truly in Christ, at the time of your salvation, you underwent a spiritual circumcision. Let's talk about circumcision. 
Didn't think you were going to get that this morning, did you? Circumcision, I'm sure we're all familiar with it, but we want to get a biblical understanding of it, its significance. Circumcision was a, a distinct mark, physical circumcision was a distinct mark of the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that is, the people of Israel. It was the sign of God's covenant with Abraham in which God promised to bless Abraham and to make of him a great nation and to bless all the families of the earth through him. That's the Abrahamic covenant, God's covenant with Abraham. Physical circumcision is not something unique. Uh, It wasn't introduced by God to Abraham or introduced into the world because God said, do this thing called circumcision. Circumcision was around, but God chose circumcision to be the sign of his covenant with Abraham, to whom he promised descendants to make him into a great and mighty nation, to bless him and to bless all the families of the earth through him. And let's look at Genesis 17, where we see this sign instituted by God for this covenant he's made with Abraham. In verses 7 through 14, that's where he introduces circumcision as the sign. So in Genesis 17, verses 7 through 14, we read this. And I will establish my covenant between me and you, says the Lord, and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. Everlasting covenant, everlasting inheritance, possession of a physical land, all the land of Canaan. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Now, again, we remember the covenant promises of God, what he promised to do for Abraham He didn't require anything of Abraham, but he did say, here's what I want you to do. Keep this sign. So all the work's going to be done by God, but Abraham, through faith and the promises of God, is going to demonstrate his faith by keeping this sign. Every male among you shall be circumcised, says the Lord. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenants. So having one's son circumcised then was an outward way of identifying oneself as a descendant of Abraham and thus a member of God's 
chosen people, and heir of his covenant promises. It was to be done as an outward demonstration of faith in God's fulfillment of his covenant promise to give Israel the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession and to be their God. If the sons of Israel were to worship God rightly and to receive the promised blessing of God, if they were to worship him rightly and receive this promised blessing, then they were to bear the mark of circumcision. This sign also was stipulated in God's law later on for his people, which he gave to them when he had formed them ultimately into the nation of Israel. He gave them his law, the constitution that would govern them. And in that law, he reiterated this command, your sons shall be circumcised, you shall bear the mark. However, circumcision was not only the sign of the covenant of God with Abraham and a physical mark of distinction between God's chosen people, Israel, and the rest of the nations. It was also an object lesson of sorts. It signified something. It signified man's need for spiritual cleansing. In his natural state, man is spiritually corrupt to the core, is he not? That's what the Word of God tells us. Man in his natural state is corrupt to the core because of the spiritual corruption he inherited from Adam and will pass on to his descendants. Sinners beget sinners who beget sinners. This total depravity keeps man from fearing and knowing and loving and worshiping God and instead hardens him in rebellion against God. This is man in his natural fallen state. And in order for man to be reconciled to God, his depravity must be cut away. His depravity must be cut away. His, his spiritual deadness must be removed. Now, physical circumcision pointed to man's greater need if he was to truly belong to God. And that greater need was spiritual circumcision, a, a circumcision of the hearts. And we read of this in the Old Testament as well, in Deuteronomy chapter 10. So again, when God has formed the descendants of Abraham into the nation of Israel, and he gives them his law, and in Deuteronomy, uh, we have Moses speaking, God speaking through Moses to the second gener generation of Israelites who he had brought up out of the land of Egypt. The first generation blew it. They didn't take that land that he said he was going to give them because they chickened out and rebelled. So he sent them to death in the wilderness. And so here's the second generation. And Moses is telling them what God requires of them. If they want to experience the blessing of God, Here's what God requires of him of them. Deuteronomy 10, 12 to 16. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. 
Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth and all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. So he said the requirement, right? And then he gives them this command. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. What was keeping them from honoring the Lord? What was keeping them from submitting to his will, his wisdom, keeping his commands for their good? They had that natural, corrupt, fallen condition. They needed to circumcise their hearts. Circumcision of the heart was of far greater importance in the eyes of the Lord than the mere physical sign. God required the physical sign, but he indicated, he stressed the importance of the spiritual need over and above the physical sign. And this is reiterated later on in Israel's history through the prophet Jeremiah. Well, in Jeremiah's day, we go fast forward in Israel's history in the land Continued in faithlessness, apostasy, disobedience to the Lord. The kingdom had been divided into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom was taken away in judgment and exile, never to be restored again to the land. I mean, until one day God will do that. And the southern kingdom remained, and in Jeremiah's day, judgment was coming on the southern kingdom for the same reasons. And we read in Jeremiah, so God is warning them through this prophet, pointing them back to his covenant, the law, what God requires of them. They had broken faith with the Lord. And here's what Jeremiah said. Thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, the southern kingdom that remained, but not for long. Thus says the Lord, break up your fallow ground and sow not among thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, Lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. God is holy. God is righteous. He will judge even those who belong to his chosen people. And then in chapter 9, we're reading Jeremiah. We've seen the command to circumcise your hearts, God stressing this importance, and he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh. Well, who's that? Those are the Jews. Those are his people. And he's saying, if they are only outwardly circumcised, and saying they're my people because they are physically circumcised, and that's it, and they forsake my law and rebel against me, The day is coming when I will punish all of them. And he says, all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in hearts. So when you read your Old Testament, you're like, what are these people's problem? Don't they just get it? I mean, come on, centuries and centuries. You know, recommitment to the Lord. See how long that lasts, time and time again. Points us to our problem today, right? We can try in our flesh to live for God and and we will continue in sin and then realize the error of our ways and we'll rededicate ourselves to Christ. But if our, if our heart hasn't been changed, if we haven't been born again, we'll just fall right back into sin. Same problem Israel had. 
And as history goes, the nation of Israel continued to be faithless, though the Lord their God continued to be faithful. However, his covenant promises to Abraham would indeed be permanently fulfilled, despite their faithlessness. But this would require God to act and to give his chosen nation what they so desperately needed, spiritual circumcision. In fact, he had revealed this in the beginning through Moses. So again, back to that second generation, they're about to inherit the the land of their possession. And uh, Moses had told them what the Lord requires of them, but later, God knows what's going to happen. He sees the heart. He knows, and he reveals this through Moses. And the Lord your God, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. And you shall again obey the voice of the Lord and keep all his commandments that I command you today. So God told them, circumcise your heart. And then later he says, Lord your God will circumcise your hearts. And then through the prophet Ezekiel, the Lord described this spiritual work he would perform upon the hearts of his people so that they would truly love him and thus experience fullness of life and blessing in him. In Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 26 and 27, God said this, And I will give you a new heart." And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That is circumcision of the heart. God grants a new heart and a new spirit and he puts his spirits in the sinner so that they may no longer be dead and hardened and in darkness, but may have life in him and may actually be able to live for him. That's man's greatest spiritual need. In addition to the forgiveness of his sins, he needs spiritual life. Because in man's natural sinful state, his heart is Deceitful above all things and desperately sick, the scripture says. From the time of his youth, the intention of his heart is evil. And that's us in our natural sinful state. Born in sin, you are evil. The intentions of your hearts are evil in your natural state. And you can't remedy that situation. You can't perform the necessary work. You need God's gracious and sovereign work upon you. God said to his people, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart, and all people everywhere need God to act in this way if they are to have everlasting life and fellowship with him. This wasn't unique to Israel. And guess what Paul says to his Christian readers? Finally, back to Colossians. Guess what he says to them? God has done this for you. He's done this for you. Verse 11, in him also, in Christ also, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off 
the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. This kind of circumcision is what the Lord ultimately requires, and it comes from him, and it is his doing. It is the circumcision of Christ. And Paul said this spiritual circumcision involved putting off the body of the flesh, putting off the body of the flesh. And the phrase the flesh is used by Paul a number of times in a figurative way to refer to man's sinful nature. That is, his natural, morally depraved condition. And it is contrasted with the new nature man takes on when God causes him to be born again by means of the Holy Spirit. So when God circumcises a man's heart, his spiritual deadness and corruption is cut away so that he is no longer in bondage to sin and in the domain of spiritual darkness. So this is, this is not about being made perfect and being completely freed from the presence of sin. This is about being liberated from the bondage of sin through the new birth so that we might truly know and love and worship God. Though the presence of still remains, it no longer has mastery over you. It, there's no longer a great chasm separating you from, fellowship, from life with God, fellowship with God, knowing God. Paul wrote in his letter to the Christians in Rome, in chapter 6, verse 6, very similar uh, things that he's addressing in this chapter. He says, We know that our old self was crucified with Christ in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So in Colossians, body of the flesh, here he says, body of sin. In order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that what? So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Not completely freed from his presence, not perfected yet, but you would no longer be enslaved to sin. So in Colossians 2.11, Paul says that you who are in Christ, you have received from God the deep spiritual cleansing you so desperately needed. Your heart has been circumcised. Your spiritual corruption has been cut away so that the power of sin over your life has been broken. And because you are in Christ, you have the ability to say no to sin and live to God. I mean, what matters is a new creation. Jesus said you need to be born again if you're to enter the kingdom of God. We can conform to the faith of our parents. We can conform to the biblical teachings concerning Christ, acknowledging these things. But what's evident in our life, if, if we're continuing in sin, if we're continuing to push against and rebel against the revealed word of God, his will, his wisdom, the rule of Christ in our life, there's evidence that that internal problem hasn't been resolved. Now, some believe that Paul brings up spiritual circumcision in verse 11 because the false teachers were pushing physical circumcision. They're pushing a lot of things, right? Why not? Sure, they probably added that too, they might think. Uh, 
Uh, perhaps they were claiming that it was necessary or valuable to one's spiritual growth and empowerment like the other things. They would say that, uh, people who believe this, uh, would say that Paul emphasized spiritual, spiritual circumcision over and against the false teacher's emphasis on physical circumcision. An idea of you received the greater thing, you don't need this. However, I, would, I, would, I don't think that's the case. If the false teachers were actually advocating physical circumcision, it would be reasonable to expect that Paul would address the matter directly and give some kind of exhortation in his letter. And he had done this in his other letters when people were pushing physical circumcision. Read Galatians. He goes after it. However, he doesn't do that in this letter. doesn't do it. And if you read on in chapter 2, you'll see that he specifically denounces the false teacher's push for observing Jewish dietary regulations and holy days, but nothing said of circumcision. Here's why I would say Paul made a point to explain to the Colossians that they had been spiritually circumcised in Christ. The false teachers were obviously esteeming and advocating a number of Jewish religious practices. However, first of all, those practices only symbolically pointed to Christ. And second of all, those practices in and of themselves were of no value, Paul says, in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. They had no power uh, to fight against sin. They couldn't and never were intended to break the power of sin. For the Jews, these practices, the ceremonies, the regulations, all of that, they, it never changed the fact that they needed a spiritual circumcision, right? Never changed that fact. And if that's the case for the Jews, if, if maintaining these religious practices didn't and were never intended to fulfill Israel's true spiritual need, what benefit would there be for the Colossian Christians to do the same? It's not, it didn't fulfill the spiritual need for Israel. They did all the regulations and stuff, but they, they weren't circumcised the heart, which is man's great spiritual need. Why would you go after the rituals and regulation ceremonies? There's no power in that. They don't address the spiritual need. So Paul's point was that those who are trusting in Christ have no use for external practices, these religious external practices, because through faith in Christ, they've received what was and has always been truly needed and what was impossible for them to achieve themselves, and that is the circumcision of their hearts. And here's another implication that we can derive from Paul's statement in verse 11. The Jews physically circumcised their male children, demonstrating that they were set apart from the world as children of Abraham. But God himself has spiritually circumcised those who are in Christ, demonstrating that they have been set apart from the world as children of God. So do you need to add religious works to this spiritual work of God? Absolutely not. You received them by faith, you continue in faith. These things are of no value to you. And then in verse 12, Paul elaborates on this saving work of God. He says, you were circumcised with the circumcision of Christ, and then verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith 
in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Now, it's important to note that just as Paul was speaking of spiritual circumcision, rather than the physical ceremonial act, he is speaking here not of water baptism, but of the spiritual reality of salvation that is signified in water baptism. That is, the baptism of the believer into Christ by means of the Holy Spirit. Baptism of the Holy Spirit. When you are born again, you are baptized by Christ into himself by means of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. The Lord Jesus is the one who spiritually baptizes people at the time of their true conversion, when they believe the gospel and place their faith in him as Lord and Savior. And it's by means of the Holy Spirit that he does that, and he pours out the Holy Spirit into our hearts, and thus we are joined to Christ. This is the baptism Paul is speaking of. And Paul has further explained what he said in this verse. In verse 12, he's further explained what he said in verse 11 regarding the reality of the Colossians' spiritual circumcision by adding the fact that they were buried with Christ in spiritual baptism. In short, he says, you were circumcised with the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Christ in baptism. So what is accomplished in both the circumcision of our hearts and our baptism into, into Christ is our death. What's accomplished in your spiritual circumcision and your baptism into Christ is your death. That is your death to sin. Your death to sin. And we can see this idea more clearly in a parallel passage, which we looked at, Romans 6, where Paul also speaks of burial with Christ through baptism. In Romans 6, we read, starting in verse 1, what shall we say then? And he's countering a ridiculous argument. Are we to, because we we're saying, hey, we're saved by grace and God is glorified because we were such sinners, and should we just sin some more so his grace is bigger? So Paul has a word about that. What shall we say then? Are, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. No. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Then in verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Amen. Do you see why salvation is a powerful work of God and there's no denying it when he has truly done this work in the life of an individual? You will see a transformation because there's truly been one. Apart from Christ, we were dead in sin. But in Christ, we are dead to sin. Because we have been circumcised in our hearts 
and baptized into Christ, we are no longer who we once were. We're no longer dead in our sins. We're no longer alienated from God and hostile in our minds towards him. As Paul said in chapter 1, this is who you once were. You were alienated from God. You were hostile in mind to him, doing evil deeds, living in them. But that's the past. That old self is gone because you have been circumcised in heart. You've been baptized into Christ. That self had, has died. And the result, uh, the result is that we are able to no longer live in sin. It's not that we're freed from the presence of sin, but you now in Christ, you are able to no longer live in it. Apart from Christ, you were a slave to it. Even though your conscience burdened you and you knew what you did was wrong, maybe you delighted in sin or maybe you were struggling with it and trying to to put off some sin in your life, but really you were powerless against it. Its power was over you. But truly placing your faith in Christ and receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit, the result is that you are finally able to no longer sin. We're able in the the power of the Spirit to, to put sin off and put it to death when it rears its wicked head in our hearts. Because it remains, right? Right there. Again, the idea of uh, the little, little devil on that shoulder. And I like the saying that, you know, when, when someone actually comes to faith in Christ, that devil's replaced by a Pharisee. But sin, sin is right there. It's present. It's baiting you, pulling the desire of your heart. So we're able to put it off and put it to death because we have been made new. We, we've, this old self that was enslaved to sin is dead. We're no longer in the dark-minded, hard-hearted, spiritually dead state we were once in. That's, that's what we're saying. Through faith in Christ, you're no longer dark in your mind, hardened in your heart, and spiritually dead. So the question is, is this true of you? I see we a lot collectively, those who of us of us who have placed our faith in Christ, but, but does that describe you? Is this the reality of your life? Has such a death occurred? Are you trusting in Christ and, and actually seeing his real transformative power in your life? Do you see that? And we're also talking about the inside. You know your thoughts. Are you praising God that by his grace you are no longer who you once were, darkened in your mind, enslaved to your sinful passions, and and hostile to God? And again, that just means I don't bow to this. I don't, I'm gonna pick and choose the wisdom I embrace from here if I think there's really any wisdom in here. I mean, being hostile to God isn't the, the angry, foaming-at-the-mouth atheist shaking his fist at God. To hostile to God is just, I'm autonomous. I'm going to be my own master. I'm not going to submit. I don't like these standards, these righteous standards. Has such a death occurred? One commentator puts it this way concerning spiritual circumcision and baptism into Christ. This, and he pulls the the phrases from these verses. The stripping off of the body of flesh, spiritual circumcision, and, in baptism, its burial out of sight alike 
emphasized that the old life was a thing of the past. Hindsight's 2020. Hindsight is 2020. You know one of my worst uh, memories of college? Worst memory. It's me. Who I was. When I think about all the arguments, all the tensions, all the difficulties with people, it was me. When I look back, that's the person I hate the most. Or I, I detest. Because I was rotten. Until God graciously changed me. And by the way, I was a professing Christian. I had conformed in certain ways, but then there was no real power of God in my life. If you've been circumcised in your heart and buried into, uh, baptized into Christ, that old life is gone. It's a thing of the past. However, Paul didn't only say to the Colossians in verse 12 that they by being baptized into Christ and thus being buried with him in his death, he didn't only say that they had died to sin. He also said that in this baptism, they were also raised with Christ, which means that the day they believed the gospel and placed their faith in Christ, they were spiritually raised to life. They received spiritual life. They were given As we read in in Ezekiel, they were given a new heart. They were given a new spirit. And they had received the Spirit of God. Which is why Paul can write something like this in his second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And as one commentator put it, because of their union with Christ, believers are alive in Christ so as to understand spiritual truths and realities and blessings and the will of God. They are not spiritually deficient so as to need to rely on the wisdom of men given through philosophy and tradition. As the false teachers were trying to persuade them. Those who are in Christ have the fullness of spiritual life and empowerment by sharing in the life of Christ because they have been raised with him. They share in his resurrection life. And finally, Paul reminds the Colossians that this this work of salvation, this newness of life in Christ, was graciously granted to them through faith. That is, as he says, through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Christ Jesus from the dead. There is power. They believed the gospel and trusted that God would give them spiritual life and ultimately raise them from the dead. Why? Because God demonstrated such power when he raised Christ from the dead. He demonstrated that power. Christ is risen, and they're placing their faith in that power, in the working of God. There's no such power in human philosophy. There's no such power in man-made traditions. There's no such power in religious regulations and rituals and ceremonies, all the trappings of, of world religion. 
as the false teachers were pushing. Therefore, there's no reason to believe that embracing such things will be of any real spiritual benefit to you. Don't even waste your time. Your faith, says Paul, has been and should always be in God's working, not yours. Not yours. So our passage this morning is a, clearly a testimony of the completeness and the sufficiency of God's work of salvation through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So you've either been circumcised in the heart or not. You've either been baptized into Christ or you have not. You are either a new creation or you are not. Either the old self is gone or it is not. There is no old self. And if not, if not, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. Again, you know, you know your heart. You know what you do behind closed doors, and God looks upon the heart. He knows the state that you're in. There's no benefit to even playing Christianity. Seek the Lord, call upon him, turn to Christ in faith. Call upon him to mercifully save your soul from the power and eternal penalty of sin so that you might be cleansed, that you might have eternal life in his name. Don't leave this this warning unheeded for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can understand and see the mighty work of salvation that you have accomplished through your Son. And this, this work that we could never do ourselves, and, and it just reminds us of the helpless and hopeless and darkened condition that we were in being alienated from you and hostile towards you. And we rejoice that it is available to us, has been made available to us through faith, that Christ has done all the work on our behalf, and it is by trusting in him that that we receive and get to experience the blessings and benefit and salvation accomplished by his work. And Father, I pray... For any individuals in here, Lord, that, that have come to grips, that you have, that you have caused them to see that there has been no transformation in their life, there is no power of yours in their life, they are still bound in their sin, and they are still living apart from your word and your will and your wisdom and, and refusing to acknowledge it. Lord, I pray that you might cause them to repent. You might grant them repentance and faith that they might trust in you and in the salvation you have made available through faith in your Son. Lord Jesus, we, we honor you and we praise you. You are the King of kings and Lord of lords. Your kingdom is coming and, and we wait with great anticipation for this world is morally bankrupt and cursed 
because of man's sin, and we thank you that you have liberated us and, and freed us from our own sin. We are the problem, and Lord, you've given us life and understanding and forgiveness that we might be granted entrance into this coming kingdom of yours and have eternal life and not be eternally separated from you forever in hell as judgment for our rebellion against you. Lord, I pray for the salvation of those who, who are alienated from you. May you draw them to yourself. May you give them life, give them understanding, give them faith in you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.